Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion that will biblically bring us to a place of brokenness, contrition over our own sin. This is vital to walking in repentance. It's central to the revival project. It begins in the house of God. It begins with us. It begins with the leaders. It begins with me, with Pastor Mike, with the deacons of the church, with the small group leaders, with everyone who leads in the Redemption Church, and there's no one who's exempt from it. So it begins with us. This is not just a fundraiser. It is a campaign to advance the kingdom of God, a prayer to God for revival here in the least church state in the most atheistic city in the U.S. And that mass repentance begins right here in our hearts. Our song, one of two, uh, by the time you're watching this, that uh, we've published at the Redemption Church through JCM, is a prayer to God for revival, saying, call forth sinners and start with me. All right, here's, here's the original recording of this song. This is not the one that's available on Spotify. You can look up Jesse Kemble Ministries on Spotify to hear the, the final actual version of that song. But Awaken Seattle is the title of it, and we've been singing it. And so the earnest prayer of my heart as not just the guy who wrote this song, but as your pastor, uh, Redemption Church, that it, the lyrics are true, that we're not lying to God when we sing those lyrics together. Here is Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders, of, uh, the, the leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters, meaning the daughters of the, the pagan peoples around them, as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe and pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard and sat down devastated. Verse 4, Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. The Hebrew word for this, I believe, is ta'anat. And it's just a time of humiliation, uh, according to the original Hebrew text. He's echoing, or sort of foreshadowing, rather, what we saw in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah, in the, in the most, one of the most famous chapters of the book, chapter 6, just is deeply convicted not only for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Woe is me, Isaiah said of himself. Here sits Ezra, just devastated for this sin. So let's go back, let's review this. We've seen these names before. We know about the Canaanites. That's sort of an umbrella term that incorporates the Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites. But wow, the Moabites, this is different. The Moabites were distant cousins of the Israelites. The false gods they worshipped were like Molech and Chemosh. And part of worshipping Molech meant sacrificing children in fire. The Egyptians, are you kidding me? The Israelites are worshipping Egyptian gods? 
there, there's an Egyptian god for every one of the plagues whereby Israel was miraculously delivered from chattel slavery to become an independent nation in the first place. And now it's not just the worship of the Canaanite gods, it's also the worship of Molech and Chemosh and the Egyptian gods for crying out loud, like this is terrible. And what makes it all worse is that it was led by the priests, and the Levites, and according to verse 2, the leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. So Ezra has just doubled over in pain with this colossal, colossal punch in the gut. The news about what's happened during this period of exile. It's time for the evening offering, but Ezra's just sitting there. And uh, we'll review verse 4 in tomorrow's devotion as well. But he's just sitting there, just taking in the enormity of the news that has just been shared with him. Here's some background on why Israel knew better. They knew better for generations. They have known better than this. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. This is pre the book of Joshua, what we just finished studying. You must completely destroy them, the Hethite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they won't teach you to do all the detestable acts they do for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So this is, this is pivotal, remember. This is not a racial issue, it's a religious issue. That they point out that the holy seed has been corrupted is not an ethnic slur against the peoples whom they've intermarried with during the exile. It's the pagan practices that go along with such intermarriage. And the reality is that a man will marry a woman and then tell her he believes whatever she wants. A man will change his theology and evidently his whole religion if it means that he can marry a woman, particularly in the setting here of the post-exilic period in which you had more women than you had more uh, you you had uh, more women than men and uh, you know th these women all adhere to a different religion so if you're a man of god in the old testament you're looking for a wife your options are limited insofar as it pertains to the women who are also descended from israel remember this as well it was never forbidden to marry foreign wives moses had a foreign wife a cushite woman possibly an, Ethi an ethiopian uh, joseph had a foreign wife. It was not marrying a foreign wife that was the problem. It was the pagan worship practices that went along with this. Now, it very well could be that some of these Israelite men shared the, the true worship of Yahweh in accordance with the law of Moses and that there were more uh, Gentile conversions as a result of this intermarriage. But the reality is something that per pertains even to this day in modern day church theology. A man will become a theological chameleon to placate a woman. There are men who are in pastoral positions who hold to views that they know are unbiblical, but it's just to placate their wives. That was the case for Old Testament Israel. Here's 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. There it is, man, Solomon, richest man ever, and by God's divine gift, the wisest man ever, had his own heart turned away from the Lord because he had taken on multiple wives, and he began to exhibit the same kind of worship practices that they did. It seems unthinkable 
It's not for a lack of intelligence. It doesn't get any smarter than Solomon. It's because of our sin nature. So think about this. Those of you who are praying about future marriage, we had a lot of single people at, at the Redemption Church. Okay, men don't compromise the word to placate a woman and then single Christian women be very skeptical if a man suddenly starts agreeing with you theologically because you're talking about marriage. Because you and I both know he's got other motivations here. His motives aren't completely clear. Rather, young single men, start leading your family before it exists. Be uncompromising on the word of God. Be delicate and show grace on matters that are comparable, right? Or that are, that, that are worthy of compromise. My wife and I don't agree on every single fine-haired point of all of theology in Scripture. But when it comes to the inerrant Word of God, when it comes to the gospel itself, these must be uncompromising. And what the men of Israel were doing was straight up worshiping other gods because they wanted to marry these women. And what's called for is a deep contrition, brokenness exhibited by Ezra right here. Revival Project, Redemption Church, Let's exhibit this same kind of brokenness and contrition over our personal sin as we invite the people with whom we live and work and drive and, oddly enough, vote into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with our own hearts, with our own souls. Be not disgusted any more for the moment with the sin that surrounds you. Be disgusted with your own sin, with your own hypocrisy. What's the point of a building campaign if we're only inviting people into a building that's full of raging hypocrites who know about their sin and they never repent of it, they never confess of it, nothing ever changes, they don't feel even the least bit broken over their sin. Here is Psalm 51, the ultimate prayer of repentance. May it be the anthem of your heart, and may you listen closely to the Holy Spirit's convicting work right now. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. That is a prayer. The NIV renders it a broken and contrite heart. Be humble about your sin. Don't try to polish it, make excuses for it, downplay it, rationalize it, and certainly not redeem it. Look it full on in the face. Behold all of its ugliness and there in such a contrite position, confess to God everything that he already knows anyway. It is not to say that you are to pile on shame atop conviction. You can distinguish between shame and conviction based on their fruits. Admittedly, I'm taking a little bit of an interpretive, interpretive liberty with Jesus' teaching about false teachers. By their fruits, you will know them. But I don't think that it's too far a bridge to cross to say that the same way you can determine false teachers from true teachers is to say that you could also use the same rubric to determine false teachings from true teachings. In your heart, you will know the difference between shame and conviction based on their outcomes. Shame is something that the devil piles on in which you strip yourself of any worth you have as an image bearer of God, a child of God who's of great worth in his sight, who's adopted into his family, who stands in judgment one day to tell us that I paid in full a co-heir with Christ. Shame would devalue you. The only logical outcome of shame is, well, I'm already this deep in the cesspit, I might as well sink further. Whereas conviction is 
the polar opposite. Conviction is, yes, this sin is grotesque. But I am called higher than this. I'm an image bearer of God, and I carry in my soul the very Holy Spirit of God. God will never allow me to be tempted beyond anything that I can bear, but when I'm tempted, He will always provide a way for me to stand up under it, and so I'm getting up. I am repenting. Everything in my life that's caused me to stumble, I'm cutting it off. I'm gouging it out. I don't care if it's my hand or my eyeball. It is better to walk through life maimed and one-eyed than for my whole body body to be thrown into the fires of hell. I am repenting. I am getting up. There are people in my community who need to hear the gospel, and I got to get out of spiritual triage right now. You see, shame will just draw you deeper into sin, and it devalues you. Conviction reminds you of how much you are worth and how much your atonement cost, and it causes you to repent. The kindness of God draws you to repentance. So feeling that deep contrition and that humility, that brokenness for your sin, allow it, allow it, and then repent and get up out of it. You don't need to guilt trip yourself any more than the Holy Spirit convicts you for your sin. It can seem self-righteous and almost like Christian virtue signaling to self-flagellate, which is so ironic because Jesus was whipped with the cat of nine tails going to the cross. You cannot supplement his atoning work. Know that when you have confessed your sins, He is faithful, He is just, to forgive you of every single last one of your sins, to absolutely cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. He throws your sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you see the brilliance of that? Had He said from the north is the south, then the two would have converged at the poles. Rather, He uses the two compass bearings that never meet, east and west. He drowns your sins in the depths of the sea. He chooses not to remember them against you ever again, not inflicting himself with amnesia, but choosing not to count them against you. You have been adopted, sealed with a down payment, the Holy Spirit guaranteeing your inheritance to come in heaven forevermore. By that Holy Spirit, you may call him Abba, Father. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. He is close to you. You are beloved. You are atoned for. You are absolutely forgiven. So confess be contrite, and then get up and get back to work because we have a lot of people to reach and we have indeed a great commission to answer. So let the mass repentance and the revival for which we seek and for whose sake we give begin in our hearts, Christian. Emulate the contrition of Ezra.